I would invite you to take your Bible, turn to Philippians, where this morning's message entitled, To Live is Christ, Part 1. Always grateful for the opportunity and the privilege that it is to minister the Word of God. This is a sacred duty for whom there is no one who is sufficient, no one who is qualified in the ultimate sense, and so it's always humbling to be spending the entire week thinking about how I can be faithful and asking for the Lord's help to be faithful to minister to His Word. I'm grateful for Pastor Dave who ministered to us last Sunday and a couple weeks prior to that, and just to give you um, something to pray about um, as the Lord continues to work in His church and to build His church. Uh, you heard him announce uh, several weeks ago the spiritual leadership program, and there have been 12 men who have been uh, accepted into that program and will be starting a three-year journey uh, in the beginning of September. So praise the Lord for that. And uh, you can be praying for these men because it's one of those things where, you know, Pastor Dave is like, you know what you're getting into yet? Yeah, no, you don't know what you're getting into. It's going to be it's gonna be a ride, but it's going to strengthen these men, and as a result, it's going to strengthen our church. It's going to be a blessing as well. We have two or three men who are about to start a, a, an abbreviated kind of fast track toward eldership, men whom the Lord uh, has here in our church who are uh, really just on, on the verge of becoming elders, and so we're grateful for that. As you know, we desperately need more elders, and so the Lord continues to give gifts to the church in the form of leaders as well as every other member of the church. And so we're just excited about what he's doing there. And then I just want to comment on Pastor Jack Hughes. Uh, I love that man. He was one of my professors. In fact, I think it's true to say my favorite professor in seminary. And his message was just such a blessing. And just this week, I've told multiple people, have you listened to that message? Yes. And I said, listen to it again, <laughs> because it is so important for the Christian life. So I'm just grateful to the Lord for for him and his wife, Lisa, and all those who served to make the Women's Conference such a, a blessing for you ladies. Well, the theme of Philippians is rejoice. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And the passage we're going to wade into this morning is one of the two passages in Philippians from which we draw this theme. The other one is chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, where Paul proclaims that he has counted everything as lost for the sake of Christ. But this passage in Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26, is precisely uh, where we find the wording of our theme, and it's wording, of course, that you are familiar with. You may have heard the old adage that joy is spelled J-O-Y, Jesus others, you. It's the idea that when you live your life following this, this structure of priorities, Christ above all and others before you, that is when you experience true joy in life. But when any of those priorities are out of order, and especially when, when you put yourself above everything else, which is what we tend to do, that is when we invite misery into our life. And so joy comes when we live by the priorities of Jesus 
others and then ourselves. And this reflects the paradox that Jesus taught. In Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to, to save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, some people think that God is out to ruin their life, to stifle their happiness and stop them from getting the most out of life. Many people want to unshackle themselves from religion, thinking that the freedom from religion is the path to fulfillment and success in life. But, friends, that is an, that, that is a delusion. It's a lie promoted by the world, the flesh, and the devil to think that when I am free from God, I am free indeed. No, no, no. When I am free from God, I am enslaved to the cruelest despot called me. While self-rule seems nice at first, it's true that people love a leader who promises to right all wrongs until they realize that he or she is a foolish ignoramus who thinks that they know better than everybody else. And that's what we are apart from God. Our culture is committed to self as the highest authority. I define my truth. I define my identity, even if it conflicts with objective realities. I determine what's good and right or what's wrong and offensive. And because there is no objective truth, it's said, I define my truth and you define your truth. This is a society that wants to to save their life to determine their own destiny. And so they've gone on a journey of enlightenment to discover themselves, and in so doing, they've lost who and what they really are. That is, creatures made in the image of a holy God. And we see the destruction that that wreaks on our society. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The manifest result of our culture's pursuit of self as the highest good, their desire to save themselves, is destruction and pain and sorrow. I mean, you just look in the world and you see that we are more confused than ever. We're more medicated than ever. Homes are more broken than ever. Substance abuse is out of control. The culture is divided against itself. On the one hand, they want to keep promoting this self-determination. On the other hand, they're trying to bail out water from a sinking ship, trying to solve the problems they've created. Perhaps there's someone here who feels this angst in your own heart. You've been desperately trying to figure out who or what you are. You've been pursuing what you thought was best for yourself, but all you find is pain and emptiness and confusion. Well, I have good news for you. There is a way out. There is a way to experience life and freedom unattainable any other way. 
And that is by giving up your efforts at self-determination and giving your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior. And if you give Him full control of your life, let Him determine your identity and your meaning and your purpose and your moral standards and truth, you will find life. God's heart, heart for us is not to ruin our lives. We do that well enough on our own. God's heart is to rescue us from the ruin and the eternal consequences and to free us from bondage to our own inept and incompetent selves so that in knowing and following Christ, we can have joy. True joy, lasting joy, sustaining joy. Now, what is joy? In our study, we've defined joy as the emotion of delight and strength produced by the Holy Spirit when we view the issues of life through the lens of God's Word. So do you want to experience delight? Do you want to have strength in your soul? Then, then don't just listen to this message. Embrace what the Word of God says as the only source of true joy. Don't be like Israel who forsook the fountain of living waters, God himself, and instead drank from the disgusting mud pits of their own imaginations. Now this text here in Philippians is a personal reflection by the Apostle Paul of the wrestling of his own heart as he's writing to this church in Philippi. But as we hear what Paul says as we peer into his soul, it's an opportunity for us to examine our own lives and what drives us. To ask the question, what or whom am I living for? If you're there in Philippians 1, follow along as I read verses 18 to 26, starting at the end of verse 18. And remember, Paul is writing this at around three years in prison or house arrest. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, even Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake." Convinced of this, I, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's just take a moment and ask the Spirit for His help as we consider His Word. Lord, as we ponder what your word would have for us this morning. I'm very conscious of the reality that in and of myself and the, the words that come out and enter into the ears of your people 
uh, I can do nothing. I can't produce anything good. I can't bring any change. If there's anything good that will come from our time this morning, it will be as a result of your work. And so we pray to that end. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And may the things that we hear be lodged deep into our soul so that we might know you, so that we might find life in you. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, with these words, Paul models for us what should be the priorities of our life. Jesus, others, you. This is not didactic teaching, meaning Paul is not giving us instructions of what our priorities should be. Rather, he opens the windows of his heart to let us listen into his internal struggle so that we can see how he responds to his circumstances on the basis of this structure that is so infused into his soul. So before we can really understand and study his own wrestlings, we need to understand the, his foundational perspective on life. And he tells us what that is in verse 21. Look at it again. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But even in saying that, he doesn't explain it. And so I want us to do a deep dive into what Paul means by this so that uh, we don't content ourselves with a, a shallow understanding of this abstract concept that doesn't reach down into the, the details of our lives. I mean, if you're here and you've been here for any amount of time, you, you've read this before, you've heard it before, perhaps you've heard sermons on this before. Just as preparation, I listened to Pastor Leek when he preached this back in uh, February of 2019, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because it was an excellent message. But sometimes we can agree with something enough to understand it, or excuse me, we can understand something enough to agree with it, but not necessarily enough to live it out. Sometimes we hear things and we can say amen, but then we forget about it as soon as we walk out the door. And so we're going to slow down and meditate on what to live is Christ and to die is gain means so that our decisions and our lifestyles and our relationships and our responses to the circumstances of life are rooted in these truths. And we're going to start with what it means to live is Christ. Now, this is not necessarily going to be exhaustive, but in thinking through what the Word of God says on this topic of what it means to live as Christ, I came up with seven foundation stones, seven aspects of what to live as Christ means. These are the basics. This is the foundational realities upon which the superstructure of Christian living is built. And no matter what your age, no matter what your stage in life, whether you're single or married, whether you're in school or in mid-career or retired, these foundation stones need to be increasingly established in our lives. For some of you, this study will have the effect of strengthening and affirming the foundation that already supports your life. Others of you will need to lift up the house a little bit to make some adjustments to the foundation. And perhaps there are some who will need to tear down your entire structure of life and start from scratch, building up from these foundation stones. 
As we walk through these seven foundation stones over the next couple of weeks, may the Spirit help us to make whatever changes are needed. For the most part, these stones are not in any particular order except for the first and the last. The first is the cornerstone of the Christian life that really sets the trajectory for everything else as cornerstones do. And the last one will help us build, to start to build on the next level of the structure of our lives. And we'll look at the first two of the seven today and Lord willing, get through the rest of them next week. So let's begin with the first foundation stone, the cornerstone, the stone that determines our ultimate purpose, our goal. And that is this, to live as Christ means to live for His glory. To live as Christ means to live for His glory. We see this purpose stated in verse 20 where Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The goal of the Christian life is that Christ would be exalted, or we could say that Christ would be glorified. And know what Paul says here. It's not just his life through which Christ is to be exalted, but his life and his death. So don't think that your capacity to exalt and glorify God is limited to those seasons of life where everything is easy and you are healthy and vibrant and when you're busy about the things of the Lord. No, Paul says Christ will even now as always be exalted, whether by life or by death. And so at at all times, whether you're stuck at home with an illness or in a hospital bed or whether you're a missionary overseas or vacationing on a cruise ship, whether you're sitting in prison or going about your work day or even sleeping, and yes, even when you're dying, every moment of every day, it should be our expectation and hope that Christ would be exalted one way or another. Christ can be exalted through our outward actions and the words that we say. Christ can also be exalted by our thoughts, what we think about, how we respond internally to our circumstances, even how we act in our dreams. Yes, I do believe that it is possible to to control, to consciously choose to honor Christ in our dreams. Our thoughts, words, Actions, desires, priorities, pursuits, relationships, all of it ought to bring glory to Christ. Now, what does it mean to to live for His glory? What, What does that look like? Two things. It means that we proclaim to God that He is worthy of worship. And it means that we proclaim to others that He is worthy of worship. We proclaim to God that He is worthy of worship, and we proclaim to others that He is worthy of worship. Let me explain. In in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, Therefore, we also have as as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And what Paul says there is that as long as we are on this earth, in this body, we have one overarching ambition in life through everything we do, and that is to please Christ. 
and when our time on earth is done and we are in the presence of Christ in glory, our highest ambition in everything that we do will be the same. We will please Christ. To be pleasing to Christ means that when He looks at us, He sees us living in a manner consistent with what He's done for us. He observes us exhibiting His character. He hears us speaking the way that He would speak. When He looks into our minds, He he can see that we're thinking the way that He would think. We are, in a word, imitating Him. And that brings Him pleasure. Like a coach who takes delight in his players when they act out the techniques that they've been taught. Or like a father who delights in his child who obeys with a good attitude. Or like a boss who is pleased when his employees do a good job and fulfill their responsibilities well. Christ is pleased when we imitate Him. We are proclaiming to Him that He is worthy of imitation. That His character is is a model worthy to be followed. That His view of reality is what should be embraced. We're demonstrating to Him that we don't just worship Him because we get something out of it, but because He is worthy of it. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. To be the firstborn in this context means to be the preeminent one, uh, the one above all others, the one who is the model and the example, who is acknowledged as the greatest in the family. When we're conformed to the image of Christ, Uh, When we live for Him, we affirm to Him that He is worthy of worship. That's the first part of what it means to glorify Christ. The second part of what it means to glorify Christ is that we proclaim to others that Christ is worthy of worship. Obviously, there are some aspects of our lives that only God knows. He, he alone knows our thoughts, and there are many things that we do in secret and private that nobody else sees and that God alone knows. But many things that we do to proclaim to Christ that He is worthy of worship can be observed by others. So when we live for Christ to please Him, at the same time, we are, being, we are putting on display others for others to see that Christ is worthy of worship. Jesus described this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, where he says, You are the light of the world. A a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and and put it under a bowl, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And so he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Don't be like those Christians who act like a Christian at church and act like a pagan at work or at school. When you do that, you prove that Christ is not worthy to be worshipped. You are denying Him, as Scripture says, and when we deny Him, He will deny us. Now, if you're a Christian, worship Christ, live as a Christian everywhere, and let the world see that Christ is worthy 
of worship. Consider 1 Peter 2, 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they observe you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. As our world becomes more hostile to the things of God, when when we live for Christ's glory, people take notice. If you watch the Libya persecution video that that was in the Life at Hope a week ago, you'll see a portion of an interview between Anderson Cooper and the widow of a murdered missionary. And if you know anything about Anderson Cooper, an anchor on CNN, he is an open homosexual and he is against everything Christianity stands for. He would have been against her and her husband going to Libya to proclaim Christ. Well, in this interview, the widow explained that she harbored no anger toward the Muslims who murdered her husband, and that she only wanted them to know the the forgiveness and the love that is found in Christ. And he couldn't understand it. He was visibly perplexed. He said, that's an extraordinary thing. He almost didn't believe it was genuine. He said, and you really believe that in your heart? You don't feel anger. You don't feel hatred toward them. I'm sorry I keep bringing this up, but it's an extraordinary thing to be able to feel that. And so she explained further, really saying the same things. And she said, it's it's how I honestly feel. It might sound crazy, but it's God's spirit that's putting this inside me. And I believe it. To which he responded, it doesn't sound crazy. It sounds like you're a remarkable person to be able to to feel this. No, she is not a remarkable person. She is a Christian who worships Christ above all, no matter what. And so imitating her Savior, she extends forgiveness to her persecutors, even those who murdered her husband. By God's grace, this sister in Christ shone her light on national television. And no doubt there were many people who joined Anderson Cooper in awe. When you don't retaliate when people sin against you, when you don't yell back when people yell at you, when you don't seek revenge when someone harms you, when you don't engage in sexual immorality like the fellow students around you, when you refuse to light or cheat or steal at the encouragement of others, when you don't speak disparagingly of your political opponents, when you, when you are falsely accused and you don't lie in return, when you love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, in so many situations, we affirm to others that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped and obeyed and imitated, and He gets the glory either in that moment or when people stand before him and they are held to account for how they responded to that witness. Friends, God is glorified when the light of Christ so shines through us that when God looks at our lives, he sees a reflection of his image. And when people look at us, they see a reflection of Christ. That's what it means to glorify God. 
The, the whole of the Christian life is to be lived for the glory of Christ. This is what Paul prays for believers in Colossians 1.9. We have not ceased to pray for you, he says, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, listen, to please him in all respects, literally in everything, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We can pray along with Paul that we would please Christ in everything. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And so it is that in every facet of our lives, we are to live for Him because we belong to Him, body and soul. In Ephesians 5, learning to please the Lord is the necessary result of being brought out of the darkness. For you were formerly darkness, Paul writes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. As those who were born in darkness, every single one of us were, we, we have lots of dark habits in our lives. There, there are a lot of dark nooks and crannies in our soul that need to be brought under submission to Christ. And so as we walk through this life and experience both blessings and sorrows, more and more areas of our heart are exposed. And so wherever we find darkness, we can claim those areas for Christ so that He would be glorified in more and more areas of our life. Another way that Scripture talks about living for Christ is in the familiar words of Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, in light of all that Christ has done for us, that God has done for us in Christ, in light of the infinite sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf, it's only right for us to live as a sacrifice for God. And that doesn't mean that we escape from the responsibilities of life and isolate ourselves from the world, but rather that as we live in this world, all that we do shows that we are God's people doing God's work, exhibiting God's character. And the primary audience for that kind of life is not the world, it's God. As you live and move around this world, the, the aroma of your life should not be that of, of your own flesh or the odors of the world, but rather the supernatural fragrance of Christ. In the Old Testament, sacrifices were not made for God to eat. They were made for God to smell. After the flood, when Noah offered a sacrifice in, in Genesis 8, it says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And then the Lord promised never to flood the earth again. Between Exodus and Numbers, over 40 times you can find that language of the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, or you're supposed to give this or that sacrifice to, to be a soothing aroma for the Lord. Unlike idols who have noses but cannot smell, our God can smell a sacrifice. 
And based on what he smells, he accepts it or rejects it. And with that thought in mind, Paul writes in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, listen, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. All the ingredients of Jesus' sacrificial life and death produced a fragrant aroma for God to smell. And so we should learn from the recipe of his life, his character, his, his words, his actions, his thoughts, so that we too can be pleasing to God in how we smell. Remember Jacob knew that he couldn't deceive his father Isaac being himself. So he faked Esau's odor by putting on Esau's clothes. Remember, there was no deodorant back then, and so a blind person could identify people by how they smelled. Now think about this. Isaac was more convinced by Jacob's smell than he was by the sound of his voice. God can't be deceived like that. We can't hang potpourri on our lives like going to church to cover the stench of a rebellious heart. Once we repent of our sin and trust in Christ, we are so united to Christ that we already are pleasing to Christ because we, He sees and smells us through the righteousness of Christ. But we should not be content with that. It should be our goal to grow in the practical imitation of Christ so that the scent of Christ intensifies as we live a life of sacrificial worship. Now, why? Why should we live for the glory of Christ? Why should that be the goal of every person who takes his name upon themselves? Because in so doing, we are joining with God in the purpose for which he does everything. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and, and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. But let's think more specifically about what it means that, that your life and mine are to Him. That is, for His glory. If you're there in Philippians, turn back just a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 1. In this chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul beautifully describes the work and purpose of God in salvation. Look, look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. If you boil this down, Paul says, 
The Father blessed us, He chose us, He predestined us to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now we know that salvation serves many purposes, but ultimately it serves the purpose of glorifying the grace of God, showing how praiseworthy it is. So salvation puts on display the glory of God's grace. Look down at verse 11. He says, also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Here, our predestination and eternal salvation is to the end that we would be to the praise of his glory. God saved you so that you would stand as exhibit A, demonstrating that God is glorious. In a sense, all creation will erupt in praise to the glory of God when your name is called out from the Lamb's book of life as one who is to receive an inheritance. Look at verse 13. In Him, you also have After listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The fact that your salvation that you have received, excuse me, the the fact that as part of your salvation you have received the Holy Spirit who is the down payment guaranteeing that you belong to God, serves the purpose of bringing glory to God. What other God, what other religion at the moment of salvation, however they define it, secures its adherence with an unbreakable bond, ensuring that they don't lose their salvation? I don't think there's any. Every demon-inspired and man-made religion forces its followers to, to keep pushing, keep striving, keep working in the hope that possibly, maybe, if you're good enough, we'll see if you make it to heaven. Not our God. No, when God saves you today, He saves you forever. And He gives you Himself. His Spirit indwells you and empowers you and keeps you. What a glorious God he is. You were born again, if indeed you were, because God is committed to putting his glory on display. The condemnation of unbelievers in Romans 1 is that they exchanged the glory of God for the image of created things. But when God shines the light of the glory of God, of the glory of Christ in the heart of a person, there's a reversal of that exchange. The insanity of worshiping created things is exchanged for the glory of God. And so the glory of God becomes our priority. The glory of God becomes our delight. The glory of God becomes our goal. That's why Paul describes sanctification this way in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So our goal 
is to live for his glory. And as we do that, we become more like him. To live as Christ means to live for his glory. That's our goal. That's our aim. Now, someone might say, well, that's, that's good and all, Pastor Gabe, but that seems pretty abstract. How, how does that work out in real life? Well, I, I've hinted at several practical ways, but the next six foundation stones answer this question. And so consider the next foundation stone. And this stone refers not only to our goal, but also to our motivation, our motivation. To live as Christ means to live controlled by, the, uh, controlled by his love. Controlled by his love. To live as Christ means to live for the glory of Christ. And secondly, to live as Christ means to, to live controlled by his love. Turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, knowing that he who raised Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will raise us. Excuse me, I'm I'm reading from chapter 4. Chapter (laughs) 5, chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Again, the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. The literal meaning of the word controls is is to be held together, uh, to be seized by something, uh, to be gripped. We might say that the love of Christ has captured us. It's actually the same word in Philippians 1.23 where Paul says that he is hard-pressed, hard-pressed by both directions with both the desire to depart and be with Christ and the desire to remain and serve him. Those two things have gripped him. It's really the idea of being so compelled by a reality that it pulls you along to a certain course of action. We often see something like this in action when people uh, get saved and they're so excited about their salvation that they just can't help but tell other people about Christ being enamored by the forgiveness and freedom they have in Christ, they can't help but tell others about Him. Or when someone is radically saved from an addiction, uh, they're not even tempted to take another drink or another hit or another look because they are so captivated by the love of Christ that those former masters hold no sway. They're gripped. They're controlled. You and I have been loved by an infinite love. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, it says in Romans 5.8. As the Son of God, Jesus was an infinite person of infinite worth, and he left his infinite glory to walk the dusty roads of Israel, to teach hard-hearted people, and to heal broken bodies. He lived in humility and righteousness and submission to the Father, ultimately giving up his life, dying a criminal's death, the death that you and I deserve, in order to rescue us from the just and eternal wrath of God. Why? 
Why did he do that? Because of his love for his people. With our finite minds, it's impossible to comprehend the full extent of the love of God. And it will take eternity to give due worship to our Savior. In fact, it's because of our natural inability to understand the love of God that Paul prays in Ephesians 3.16 that the Father would grant you, according to the, the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the, the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all of the fullness of God. In short, that prayer says that the Spirit would empower us to give us a greater capacity to comprehend the extent of the love of Christ. The love of Christ is, is overwhelming. It's irresistible. It's incomparable. It's unrivaled. It's extravagant. It's undefeatable. It's unending. Human vocabulary cannot exhaust the glorious refractions of His love. We can't climb the, the, the heights or plumb the depths or measure the width or, or walk the length of the love of Christ. And so it's a tragedy when a Christian responds to the love of Christ with a yawn, with a sigh, nodding off because it's so familiar if we are not gripped by the love of Christ, that simply means we don't know Him. We don't understand what He's done in any depth. Again, Paul said there in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, if you're not thinking rightly, you, you could interpret this to mean that Christ died for you to force you to live for him as a kind of quid pro quo arrangement. Living for Christ in this mindset is ex, it would be externally motivated. You feel like you have to love Christ. After all, look at what he did for me. The principle of reciprocation requires that I live for him. There's a similar sense of external obligation when your parents ask you to do your chores or when your boss tells you to do something you'd rather not do. But that is not true Christian living. To live for Christ should not feel compulsory in the sense that it is a constant bother in your life. If that is your experience, you need a heart examination. It's true that we ought to live for him who died for us, but the compulsion should rise from within primarily as our hearts are transformed by his love. To live as Christ means that his love has so captured our soul that we cannot but help to live for him. I mean, think about what it means for a father or mother to, to love their newborn child. Whatever connection they had before the birth, there's this whole new dimension that comes into being when you hold your baby for 
the first time. No, no father or mother holds their baby deliberating whether or not to love this, this child. No one weighs the pros and the cons, calculating the the number of diapers they're going to have to buy over time or the hours of sleep that they're going to lose, asking, should I love this child? Should I protect this child? Should I feed it? Is it worth it? No. In that moment, the gift of God captivates your heart and you commit yourself to do all you can to care for this child from that day onward. There is no external compulsion. It's an internal impulse. And so it is with Christ. When the Spirit opens our blind eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the love of Christ, our souls are irresistibly drawn to Him and we can't help but believe and give ourselves to Him. And whether there's a dramatic change in a short period of time or gradual change over time, our lives are molded into his image because there's an internal love for the things of Christ and a distaste for the things of the world. But often, over time, complacency can set in. Familiarity may not breed contempt, but it may breed contentment. I know enough. I do enough. I'm not that bad. And slowly the the love of Christ becomes less bright. And the things of this world are not as dark as they once were. And compromise can creep in. Things like wealth or, or comfort or sports or entertainment, family, relationships, many other things can rise in importance and compete with our time for our time and our money and our devotion. And we begin to shift our thoughts of what is it that makes us happy and successful and fulfilled. Whatever else is going on in our life, our relationship with Christ, our living for Christ, can best be described as coasting. You know, this is the charge that Christ brought to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. They left their first love. They weren't celebrating sin. They weren't embracing false teaching. They weren't denying Christ. Their love for him had faded. They were living by rote. They were no longer controlled by the love of Christ. And in and of itself, that was enough to bring rebuke from Jesus. But then he offers them a solution. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first, he says. Go back to the days when you were enamored by me. Restart those habits of pursuing me, of of drinking from the fountain of my word, of true fellowship with my people. Do what you used to do to grow in the grace and knowledge and the love of Christ. We need to grow in our understanding of the love of Christ, so that we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but but Christ who lives in me. And, And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You know, Paul never got over the fact that he was loved by Christ. Christ loved him who persecuted the church and blasphemed Christ. 
Paul said to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love with our, which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul shows his, his being enamored by the love of Christ as he explains salvation in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, where he wrote, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And so it is in light of the love of Christ that we are commanded in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore, again, be imitators of God as beloved children, those who are loved, and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us. Later in that chapter, Paul tells husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the Apostle John writes in his letter, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now with this in mind, think about the two greatest commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, Matthew 22. Why are these the two greatest commandments? Because to live is Christ. And when we live as Christ, we, are live com- we live compelled by his love. And when we are compelled by the love of Christ, we will love God and we will love others the way that Christ has loved us. Friends, I hope these two foundation stones are compelling to you. I hope that when you hear to live as Christ means to live for the glory of Christ and to be compelled by the love of Christ, your soul is stirred with joy and that you delight and are strengthened to think about life in this way. That's a sign that you belong to Christ and that he is is working in you. But if you find yourself disinterested in the glory of Christ unstirred by his love, I urge you to examine your soul to see if you know him at all. And if you don't, come to the cross and plead for forgiveness. Acknowledge to Christ that you don't love him even though he is worthy of your love. Confess your sin of apathy, which is a form of hostility. And ask him to open your eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. And know that when you do call out to him, he will hear you and he will forgive you and he will give you a new heart and a new spirit so that you will love him and live for him. Perhaps you do know him and over time you have left your first love. Like Martha, you are busy about many things. But you need to be like Mary who sat at the foot of Christ to listen to his every word. You need to reorient your life around the glory and the love of Christ and let those priorities reverberate throughout your life. You need to examine your motives 
and consider what are you living for? Whose glory are you seeking? If your life is an advertisement, what or who are you promoting? Now, may we all, with the Spirit's help, and that's the only way to do it, with the Spirit's help, increasingly live for the glory of Christ and be compelled by the love of Christ. May it be true of us that we could say, for to me, to live is Christ. Now, I make no promises, but next week, Lord willing, we'll cover the other five foundation stones. Let's pray. Jesus, as we have considered these things, we acknowledge our, our need that we are inadequate. Uh, we fail. That there is not a person in this room that loves you the way that we ought to, that is as controlled by your love as we ought to be, that lives for your glory as much as is needed. And so we just ask for your help, for your spirit to work in our hearts to take the word of God, to comfort us, to encourage us, to propel us forward so that Christ would be glorified in all things. We pray in his name. Amen.